is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And all month long, we're bringing you stories of families who've lost children to miscarriage or sudden loss of an infant or stillbirth. So many families go through these tragedies. And on October 1988, President Ronald Reagan declared October as National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And there's an organization that's doing some very distinctive work to help families in their grief. Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep is a nonprofit that sends volunteer photographers to provide beautiful heirloom portraits to parents facing the untimely death of a baby. They have some 1,700 active photographers around the world and reach every state in the United States, 40 countries worldwide. To learn more about what they do, we spoke with one of their photographers in Colorado, Cliff Lawson. Here's his story of getting into photography and then many decades later, applying those skills to give hundreds of families a unique gift. I got into photography back actually when I was in college and uh, kept it as a hobby throughout my entire adult life. <laughs> I was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and when I was, uh, took my R&R, my first stop was a camera shop in, uh, in Tokyo to buy the Nikon F, which at that time was, you know, that was the camera. And in fact, uh, to this day, I still have it. still works. I haven't put any film through it in 10 years, but that's how I got involved in photography as a hobby. Then I retired back in 2001, and uh, after about a month or so, my wife decided, she said, you know, sweetie, you need to go find something to do. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I, yeah, let me get back and really, really hit this photography hard and, and, and uh, make something of it. So I um, ended up buying a digital camera. Of course, by that time, the digital photography was the thing. I started... Uh, with just two lenses and a digital camera. I started taking some sports pictures. Then, at the time, I was working as a uh, sales associate at a camera store here in Parker, Colorado. And a young man came in, and he was getting some pictures developed. Turns out he was an associate photographer for now letting me down to sleep. And we got to talking, and he mentioned that. And I said, oh, really? Well, what is this? He said, well, you know, we take pictures of babies that will never leave the hospital. I think the reaction is like many people. Oh, my, that sounds so sad. He said, well, yeah, it is. He said, but here, let me show you some pictures. And he had his laptop. And his beautiful images he'd taken of a child in the in the hospital. And uh, so we talked some more. And he said, you know, you should consider doing this. We could always use more photographers. Kind of a, yeah, yeah, I should think about it. I went home and talked to my wife about it. She said, well, you know, you're so... You tend to be so emotional about things. Do you think you could handle it? I said, I don't know. I don't think you can know until you try. A few days later, maybe a week later, I was getting my hair cut. And the lady that cuts my hair, um, I was telling her about, you know, we talk about what's going on in our lives. And I mentioned this to her. She came around in front of the chair, pointed her finger at me, and she said, you need to do this. I lost my son 20, whatever it was, 21, 22 years ago. They never let me see him. I would give anything to have what you're going to be able to give to these families. Well, that just, that was kind of the tipping point. I said, well, wow, okay. So I sent in my application and volunteered and was accepted. And um, here I am now. As of the end of this year, I've been with the Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep for 10 years. I think I've done 440, 150 babies in that in that 10-year span. 
so uh, that's how I got involved uh, with this, and it's just a it's a wonderful organization. And we uh, it's interesting to me that when we try to recruit photographers, they say, "Oh, I can't do this. I'd be so emotional." And I tell them that you know I'm emotional too. In fact, I cry at the end of Undercover Boss when the guy gives away stuff to the employees, you know. But this doesn't bother me because you know you've got a job to do, and so you you have to think about uh, do I get the lighting right? Am I getting the posing right? Am I getting the the kind of shots that we want to get? Uh, the mom with the baby, dad with the baby, mom and dad with the baby, the various different poses we get. So you really we call it getting into photographer mode, I guess. But you are so much concerned with getting your job right that the emotion of the moment, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't want, want to sound cold here, but it's their issue, not mine. My issue is to get the pictures. And I understand that, you know, it's a very, very sad day for these families, but we have a job to do. So I don't find it um, that emotional taking the images if I'm going to get emotional about it, it happens at the computer when I'm editing and processing those images, you know, changing them to black and white uh, and looking at it. Then, then sometimes, yeah, it kind of gets to me. And by the way, what a remarkable series of events. I mean, Vietnam, camera shop, someone comes in, tells him about this gig. Then he's getting his hair cut. And this happens to us all the time in life. It's actually sort of how life happens. Some call it serendipity. And believers say it's a God thing. Either way, you take it and play it. It's one of the two. And here are several couples who've lost babies speaking to how they felt during their Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep photo sessions and what the pictures have meant to them ever since. She will fit in there. There were moments of toughness and moments of weakness. And I think they, were, they weren't consistent, but they were off and on. I was terrified of it. I knew that it was something that I would want and that's something that we needed to do to make memories, but I didn't know how I felt about the actual process. They are really what we have instead of having him. Um, we have, you know, little mementos and, and things of his, but the pictures are him. They're her. They're our tangible piece of her that we can hang on to and look at forever. We have our memories and we have our moments that we can kind of try to flash back to, but the pictures allow us to really go there and to really be back in those moments with her. And I even keep one on the bathroom counter. So when I'm brushing my teeth and it's just kind of your monotonous day to day, it kind of takes you back and just lets you remember that child that you don't see every day. Now I lay me down to sleep has given me the opportunity to remember it clearer and I guess hold on to it tighter. And whether or not they look right away or they don't look for three months, six months or five years, you don't get that chance again. So to be able to have an organization that will literally go anywhere and to anyone to give that gift is priceless. Um, you know, our favorite one that we have um, a big, big picture of in our hallway uh, he just looks so, so beautiful. You know, he's just our baby in that picture. And when I think of him in my mind, that's the picture that I see. And it just make, makes it almost feel like it's 
gonna be okay and it gives people hope to to know that you know you're allowed to love that baby just as much as your other babies and here's proof and if you're a photographer who'd like to volunteer or a family or healthcare professional that might want to request a remembrance photo session you can learn more at now i lay me down to sleep.org that's now i lay me down to sleep.org and thanks to those families for sharing thanks also to cliff and that's cliff lawson in colorado for what you do and for sharing your story this is lee habib and this is our american stories National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Not many people cover it. We do. This is Our American Stories, and in this next story, we're going to take a look back at one of the best and weirdest stand-ups to ever hold a mic. And by the way, we've done a lot on comedians. We were just talking about it, and Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Steve Martins was just terrific, real insights into the life of a stand-up. Joan Rivers, what a life. Johnny Carson, just terrific stuff there. And... My personal favorite, Don Rickles, whose act would be against the law today. And we did an hour on his life and what a life it was. And now, Mitch Hedberg. He was an old-fashioned one-line spitter like Henny Youngman and an observer of the foibles of everyday life like Jerry Seinfeld. But the simplicity of his format obscured the qualities of his work that made him a legend. Quote, every book is a children's book if the kid can read. It's just one good example of classic Hedberg writing. Mitch never tried to speak about issues as most comics do. Instead, he was telling jokes about, well, ducks. Here's Mitch's story. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely proud to present Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg was one of the greatest comedians of all time. He might not be a household name like George Carlin or Louis C.K., but he'll always be remembered for his signature style and unconventional offbeat delivery. Yeah, I got, I got to write these jokes. So uh, I sit at the hotel at night, I think of something that's funny, then I go get a pen and I write it down. Or if the pen's too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. <laughs> his comedy typically featured short, sometimes one-line jokes, mixed with absurd elements and non-sequiturs. I've always wanted to have a suitcase handcuffed to my wrist. All right. My friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. If I said no, 
but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. <laughs> I'm out to dinner with a group of friends and someone offers to pay for the check. I immediately reach for my wallet because inside is a note that says, say thanks. <laughs> I used to do drugs, I still do, but I used to too. Mitch displayed a visible delight in being on stage and he embodied a warmth that would draw his audience into his world. I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. He earned a cult following and the admiration of his fellow comics. I order the club sandwich all the time and I'm not even a member, man. I don't know how I get away with it. I like my sandwiches with three pieces of bread. So do I. Well, let's form a club. Okay, but we need some more stipulations. Yes, we do. Instead of the cutting the sandwich once, let's cut it again. <laughs> Hell yeah, four triangles. We'll position them into a circle. And in the middle, we will dump chips. <laughs> or potato salad, cool. I can deal with that. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. How you feel about frilly toothpicks? I'm for them. <laughs> well, this club is formed then. I like to take a toothpick and throw it in the forest and say, you're home. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hedberg moved out when he turned 18 to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comic. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? You got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> to hell with purple people. Unless they're suffocating. <laughs> then help him. He lived out of his car and honed his routine and built his reputation playing comedy clubs across the country throughout the 1990s. Here's fellow comedians Shard Hogan, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell, and Chuck Savage. The unique thing about Mitch is that he didn't do a lot of uh, typical setup type, you know, joke jokes. It was just so much different than anything anyone was doing or is doing today. Here was a guy standing on stage with his eyes closed, just kind of doing this, you know, uh, thoughts, basically, that were like hilarious and so out there. And as a comic, you kind of always know where the joke's going, like, you know, with his stuff, it was always, it blew me away. A good comic says funny things, and a great comic says things funny. And that's what Mitch did, he said things funny. When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. It's weird to hear that a guy who made his living performing in front of people was terrified of doing so. But Mitch Hedberg had severe stage fright. And so the prototypical Hedberg performance involved dark sunglasses, long hair draped over his eyes, and set long staring contests with the floor. And finally, Mitch would bookend this list by completely closing his eyes to keep the crowd at an even safer distance. You know on TV, when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish, but they let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, but they do want to make it late for something. <laughs> Where were you? I got caught. Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. Every comedian messes up a joke on occasion, 
but they usually ignore their flubs. Not Hedberg. He tended to ruminate on his failed jokes, criticizing them on stage at a level few comedians could ever get away with. Dogs are forever in the push-up position. That joke. That joke. That joke is dumb. I'm aware of that. Advil has a candy coating. It's delicious. And it says right on the bottle, do not have more than two. Well, then do not put a candy coating around it. For I cannot help myself. Let me have ten Advil. Do you got a, I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> I think I screwed part of that joke up. I, I apologize about that. Deadspin likened it to him breaking the fourth wall. In an odd way, it made him even more endearing and relatable to his fans. I find that Duck's opinion of me is very much influenced over whether or not I have bread. You know that, Petra's farm bread, that stuff is fancy, man. It's wrapped twice. You open it, and it still ain't open. That's why I don't buy it. I don't need another step between me and toast. Hedberg's innovative onstage persona brought him to the doorstep of fame, and he soon earned top billing. At the 1998 Montreal Comedy Festival, Mitch wowed the crowd. I got a king-sized bed. I don't know any kings, but if one came over, I guess he'd be comfortable. (laughs) Oh, you're a king, you say. Well, you won't believe what I have in store for you. It's to your exact specifications. When I was a boy, I laid in my twin-sized bed and wondered where my brother was. All right. I had a cold sore. I put some Carmex on it. Carmex is supposed to heal cold sores. I don't know if it does, but it will make them shiny and more noticeable. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. Please welcome Mitch Hedberg. Mitch! As an encore, Mitch booked the ultimate stand-up gig, a spot on The Late Show with David Letterman. I got a V-neck shirt on, man. I like V-necks, you know? And I hate turtlenecks, man. A turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. (laughs) All day. This is so unusual to hear so much applause. I think you're trying to trick me and make me think I'm done. Letterman wanted him back right away. A rare request for stand-up comics. By the end of 1998, Mitch landed a half-million-dollar TV deal with Fox and starred in his own special for Comedy Central. He was even dubbed the next Seinfeld by Time magazine. This shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. By the early 2000s, Mitch was performing 300 shows a year and sometimes three in a night. Hedberg never passed on a job, even at the peak of his fame, because he had been rejected so many times in his career that he felt if he didn't say yes he might not be given the opportunity to perform again. I went, to a, I went to a pizzeria. I ordered a slice of pizza. The dude gave me the smallest slice possible. If the pizza was a pie chart for what people would do if they found a million dollars, this dude gave me the donate to charity slice. <laughs> I would like to exchange this for the keep it. 
Ultimately, Mitch's drive to succeed and his drug use, most notably heroin, took him over the edge. This morning, we've learned a popular comic from St. Paul has passed away. Mitch Hedberg died in a hotel room in New Jersey on Wednesday. Hedberg died of a massive heart attack caused by drug abuse on March 29th, 2005. Mitch was not the next Seinfeld, but he never needed to be. He was Mitch Hedberg. As a comedian, you have to start the show strong and you have to end the show strong. Those are the two key elements. You can't be like pancakes, all exciting at first, but then by the end, you're sick of them. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. stories and we love to cover our favorite shows and two of them are well they're not necessarily new judge judy's been out there forever but we still cover it for you because it's one of the most entertaining hours on television we get it for an hour here in oxford mississippi i don't know about you or you are but most of the country gets it an hour and then there's shark tank which is running it seems never endingly so on cnbc at night and is the number one rated show on Fridays. It's been Friday nights. It's been around four or five years, and it's terrific, and it just keeps getting better. And we cover a pitch a week when we can. And this past week, Phil and David pitched their product, Physics, their patent-pending invention that enhances the flavor of any beer. Here's the pitch. Hi, Sharks. I'm Phil Petraka. And I'm David McDonald. We are the founders of Physics from Newark, New Jersey. We're seeking a $500,000 investment for a 4% equity in our company. Wow. Physics is changing the way people are drinking beer at home and on the go. Beer is pretty awesome, and we all know that beer tastes best fresh from the tap. After all, that's how the brewers intended their beers to taste. But in order to reach the masses, beer is sold in cans and bottles worldwide. And unfortunately for us beer lovers, it just doesn't taste as good as it does fresh from the tap. But drab beer is a thing of the past with physics the world's first and only portable draft beer system that delivers an awesome, better than tap, experience from any can or bottle. Simply place any size can or any size bottle, even up to a 64 ounce growler into the system and insert the feed tube. Pull the tap handle forward and the system will begin to pour the beer under pressure at a controlled rate with no gas, no chemicals, and no replaceable cartridges. And then when you push the handle in the backwards position, behold, the magic of science. I'm excited and I don't drink beer. Here's how it works. Utilizing sound waves, we perfect the density, stability, and texture of the foam 
enhancing the aroma and flavor of an authentic draft beer. Wow! <laughs> Here's what the Sharks had to say after a side-by-side comparison of regular beer from a can versus beer that had, on, that had gone through the physics device. Oh, definitely smoother, definitely better. Like night and day. Oh, that's wow. a good beer. Oh, that is good. Isn't that good? Yeah. And that's from a can. This is good. That's from a can. The foam is really good. The foam is the most critical element of the beer drinking experience. Can I get a share of hands, Sharks? Who feels that the physics is better than the other one? I would say this definitely advanced night and day. Night and day, they're like two different beers. We always say tasting is believing. Believe me, I was very skeptical when I saw this. Yeah, me too. Mr. Wonderful might be on board with the product, but it's the valuation that's another story. Now, I've looked at the valuation and I say, are you guys out of your friggin' minds? Well, Kevin, we just started shipping product eight oh. months ago, oh. and we've done $3.2 million in sales. Wow. Okay. Not bad, not bad. You just started shipping. How, How much does that cost? This retails for $199. And Phil. what does it cost you to make? $35.88. Oh, wow, good for you. Wow, good market. Really? Phil. Yeah. Really? You bet. Robert, well, he's ready for an offer. I'll give you the 500000 for 8%. Robert, thank you so much for your offer. We believe it's way below market. This is part of our Series A round. Wow, Series A round. Mr. Wonderful? I will give you the same offer, 500000 for 8%. I like this deal a lot. I can move a lot of units, a lot. And here, Barbara Corcoran tells it like she sees it. I'm wildly enthusiastic about the product, but I'm not wildly enthusiastic about you. I feel like you're too slick. You have every answer. And my gut is ringing. There's got to be something wrong. You're too slick for me. I don't trust you, so I'm out. That's going to burn. Just somebody says, I just don't like you. Exactly right. It's not your business. It's not your plan. It's not your product. She's honest. Yeah, yeah it is. And by the way, it's not that you have all the right answers. Yeah. Because that's what she basically said. (laughs) Well, sometimes you just don't like someone for whatever reason. Here's the reason that Damon drops out. The main reason that I started to do this show and love this program is all the people that really need help. You don't need any money. You're cash flow positive. Why are you here? Well, we need to scale. There are some retailers that we want to go into that we currently can't because we have channel conflict. So what Give I want to show what I want to show you all is, is what we're anticipating, what we're investing in. You didn't even get to your slides yet. This is our <laughs> this is our next generation product. No, Phil, Phil, I'm I'm just gonna let everybody wait, wait, help. Wait, Phil, I Phil, Phil, so this Phil, is our next Phil, 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 Phil. Yes, I'm out. Okay. Why'd you do that? <laughs> wow, Lori, what about you? The great thing for you is I have QVC and TV sales because you need to get out there education. You need people to know what it is. So it's free advertising. So I am also going to give you 500,000 for 8%. 8% by three offers, same offer, three different sharks. Things start to move fast when Mark Cuban throws in his offer. And wait for some man crying at the end of this clip. (laughs) Some man crying. I want to make an offer. And I'll even open up to Lori to come in on my offer. So I'll offer you $800,000 for 10%. That valuation is higher than the 500 for 8%. But it gives you more cash so you can go to work faster and you have either one or two sharks. I would like to make a counter to Mark and Lori. I like the deal. All right? I think we would be great partners. This is our Series A round. If you want to take the whole Series A, we're looking to raise $2 million yeah, at a right. $10 million pre-money valuation. 
So that's 16%? Yes, 16.67. Well, I want to compete. Okay, I'll do that deal. Done. Oh deal. my God. <laughs> it's really, it it's here, really it fabulous. I am Get not a beer drinker. And, you are uh, you now, baby. Me. You are I am you now. are now. We risked it all, left great jobs. This is the American dream. I'm just so full of emotion right now. It's awesome. It's okay, man. It's okay, man. There's no crying on Shark Tank. Oh, the whole, that's the first time ever that the entire Series A round, when thrown out there, was covered by the Sharks. Jesse, what do you think? Would you give this a shot? You're the beer drinker in the house. Absolutely. Shake up my beer, make it a little more foamy. (laughs) What the heck? Right. (laughs) This is Lee Habib, Shark Tank. We love it because it's everything we love about America. A bunch of folks trying to get ahead and some one percenters trying to help some youngsters and some old timers get ahead themselves. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. This is Our American Stories, and Americans are expected to spend over $9 billion this year on Halloween, making it the second biggest commercial holiday behind only Christmas. More than half of American homes will be decorated on Halloween, and practically every American child will carve a pumpkin and go trick-or-treating. And no Halloween would be complete without a costume party or a visit to your local haunted house filled with ghouls and ghosts and plenty of staged blood. Today, we're going to bring to light the stories that have been hiding in the dark, answering the question, why do we do these strange things every Halloween? Brayden, go up there, say trick or treat. Trick or treat. Oh, there you go. What do you say? You're welcome. How do we describe Halloween without sounding insane? Mass children come to our doors and threaten us with a trick if we don't give them a treat. But why do we do this? And why do we carve faces into pumpkins, then light the candles inside? And why do we adorn our houses with coffins and tombstones? The truth is, we take great pleasure in scaring ourselves to death. This impulse is ancient. And so are our treasured Halloween traditions. Here's Talk Thompson, who teaches a ghost story seminar at USC. And its ancient origins go back to the old Celtic calendar. And the old Celtic tribes divided the year between a light half and a dark half. And uh, Samhain, their ancient holiday, was a precursor to our Halloween. It was the beginning of the dark half. Centuries before Christ, A tribe of warriors called the Celts celebrated their Samhain festival with bonfires on the night of October 31st across most of Europe and throughout the British Isles. The Samhain harvest represented the transition from the summer to the winter, and they were at the mercy of the elements. 
For these ancient peoples, it was a matter of life and death. And winter was the scariest season of them all. But the Celts believed there was even more to Samhain. Here's Leslie Bannatyne, author of Halloween Nation. It was a bit of a warning. You know, it's going to get cold and dark. Gather together, come home, and don't send anybody out alone in the dark. Here's USC history professor Lisa Biddle and Halloween historian David Skull. What marked Samhain and this transition from light to dark was that time and space became permeable, flexible. And so that spirits not only of the dead, but of the past or of other realities could sort of wander into our reality and humans could wander out and get lost in the other world as well. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest and the living and the dead could commingle. And that's at the, the root of all the Halloween celebrations. On Samhain night only, the Celts believed those who had died in the past year walked the earth once more. But not every visiting ghost was friendly. So the Celts devised ways to appease these spirits. Here's professor of religion at Princeton University, Elaine Pagels. It comes from this very archaic sense that the dead return. You have to placate them, you have to do something with them, or they might, they might return and stay, they might trouble you and you know, haunt you in various ways. To appease these spirits, the Celts would parade out to the edge of their villages with offerings of food and sweets as gifts for the dead, trying to coax the evil forces away from their homes. Here's Jack Santino, author of Halloween, Death and Life. The belief in death, the belief in the wandering spirits, the idea of dressing up in costumes and being allowed to perform mischief and pranks, much as supernatural creatures would, much of our contemporary Halloween traditions seem to be reflected in this ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. The truth is, we know very little about Samhain. But what we do know is that their bonfires drew one familiar icon, the bat. In older times, people had bonfires on Halloween. Mosquitoes attracted to the bonfires and the bats attracted to the mosquitoes and probably the owls. Um, So you could see them flying over the Halloween bonfires and they became associated with the holiday. How did these ancient traditions survive into our modern era? They were preserved by the Catholic Church. By the 7th century, the Catholic Church had spread throughout most of Europe. Missionaries, including St. Patrick, who would become the patron saint of Ireland, had successfully converted the pagan Celts. The church had found that conversion was far more successful when attempts were made to offer clear alternatives to existing calendar celebrations, rather than simply stamping them out. It was a tactic used under Pope Gregory I to convert more pagans. He said, if you should come across a group of people worshiping a tree, he said, rather than cut the tree down and tell them that they were ignorant and in error, he said, instead, consecrate it to Christ and tell them to keep meeting as they were accustomed to meeting at the same spot. A key pagan festival destined to get a Catholic makeover was Lemuria, a Roman festival of the dead on May 13th, 
where they performed rites to exorcise the malevolent and fearful ghosts from their graves. Here's Brown University professor of Roman history, Nicola Lewis. Of all the different days that they have in the Roman calendar to celebrate the dead, it was the spookiest. So on the Lemuria, what are called the larvae, the ghosts of the departed would come up um, and haunt people. The church co-opted Lemuria in 609, turning May 13th into what they called All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, the word hallow being equivalent to saint. All Hallows' Day honored the most holy of dead Catholics, those saints who attained heaven. All Hallows' Day was such a success that church leaders made a decision to drain the life out of Samhain. So they moved All Hallows' Day from May 13th to November 1st. Because of this move, people started calling Samhain all Hallows' Evening because it was the evening before All Hallows' Day. And this quickly shortened into All Hallows' Eve and finally into Halloween. And when we come back, more on the story of how Halloween came to be. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Greg Hengler and his piece on how Halloween came to be. People continued to dress in straw costumes or in animal skins, continued to put out offerings for the souls of the dead who were traveling at that particular time, continued to do much of what they had been accustomed to doing, but now doing it under the name of Halloween rather than under the name of Samhain. And then, to be safe... In the 10th century, the Catholic Church went one step further, adding a holiday to not just honor the saints in heaven, but all Catholics who died and had yet to reach heaven. So November 2nd became All Souls Day. In Mexico, this day is called the Day of the Dead. It's a blend of Spanish Catholic influences mixed with pre-existing pagan Indian elements. This is real important for Halloween because this is where Halloween gets its association with dead souls, death, and the supernatural again. The Catholic Church also established the tradition of trick-or-treating. It all started in the Middle Ages on All Souls Day when priests told church members to pray for souls trapped between heaven and hell in an intermediate world they call purgatory or final purification. Purgatory is not a pleasant place. It's not hell. It's not as bad as hell is, but it's still probably pretty fiery. Souls are kind of suffering there. Luckily, there is something that you could do. You could offer up prayers for them. So how do souls get out of purgatory? According to the church, if enough prayers were offered, a soul would be released up to heaven. Because of this, children would go souling, begging for soul cakes, 
which were spiced cakes filled with raisins. In return for these treats, the children and some adults would offer up prayers for souls trapped in purgatory. While this forerunner to trick-or-treat became a preoccupation for the medieval church, so did another future essential of Halloween, witches. Here's historian Steve Gillen. It made perfect sense for people in medieval times to believe that there were demons and witches. And if there were demons and witches and they were responsible for bad things in the world, it made sense that you hunt them down and you kill them. That was their worldview. A witch panic that climaxed in the late 16th century established the look of the character. Almost always a woman, witches were seen as the devil's handmaiden bent on evil and destruction. Here's Lisa Morton, author of the fascinating book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And a lot of the symbols that were associated with these women, who probably often lived alone, uh, may have been somewhat eccentric, of course, end up becoming associated with witches. In 1486, Pope Innocent VIII published a book claiming a direct link between witchcraft and the devil. He then outlawed the pagan Celtic religion altogether. Over time, even the practical cooking tools used by all acquired sinister dimensions and became model Halloween icons, thanks to witches. Even something mundane as a broom became an instrument of evil, as well as handy transportation. Another accessory in every witch's lair was perfect for brewing devilish potions, the cauldron. Here's a clip from the 1956 Looney Tunes episode starring Bugs Bunny and the incredibly vain and hilarious Witch Hazel. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Not bad. Cauldrons become very popular. Again, it was something that every household had in medieval ages. It was your basic cooking implement. The pointed witch's hat was a variation on a country woman's hat. And, of course, even the animals associated with witches took on a demonic character. Here's historian Libby O'Connell. It's not surprising that cats are associated with witches and Halloween. Cats can be a little enigmatic. Um, You don't really know what's going on in their head. Also, they used to hang out near the hearth and by the brooms. So they became associated with witchcraft and with Halloween. This period saw the continued influence of one of Halloween's most well-known icons, the mask, which also appeared in tandem with another unfortunate Halloween tradition, destructiveness. Beggars on All Hallows' Eve guzzled their share of alcohol and demands for food and drink became a bit threatening. Masks helped hide their identities. In Britain, they got into some very particular forms that involved dressing in costumes and going house to house to present these little plays. And at the end of the performance, they would be rewarded with food and sometimes money. By the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was undergoing enormous changes. On Halloween Day in 1517, 
Exactly 500 years ago, Christian revolutionary Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, attacking Catholic dogma. By launching the Protestant Reformation, Luther changed the face of Christianity and Halloween forever. He rejected all those symbols that stood between worshipers and God, including popes, priests, and saints. So, when saints went out of favor, so did All Saints Day and, of course, All Hallows' Eve. But the holiday was too popular to go away completely. In 17th century England, these customs survived only in rural areas. But thanks to a Catholic militant named Guy Fawkes, they would soon turn up in the city streets. On November 5th, 1605, Fox tried to blow up the Protestant-dominated House of Lords with 36 kegs of gunpowder. His plan was to assassinate King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Guy Fox was tried, found guilty, and hanged. And according to legend, his body was then drawn and quartered and the pieces were thrown into a fire. The next year on the anniversary of the failed plot and the years following, London's children and adults mocked the memory of Guy Fawkes by causing chaos in the streets, parading, begging, and building bonfires. Today in England, this is called Guy Fawkes Day, or Bonfire Night. The custom that has evolved over the centuries in England is for children to make effigies of Guy Fawkes, and then Guy Fawkes is burnt on a bonfire. They spend several weeks prior to November 5th with their dummies and asking people for a penny for the guy. It's a begging tradition, not unlike trick-or-treating in its own way. But would this pagan celebration make its way across the Atlantic to disrupt the sanctuary of the New World? For the Bible-believing Puritans of New England, the supernatural was a dark, menacing force, not a harmless superstition worthy of a yearly holiday observance. They considered Halloween too pagan and too Catholic. The Protestants, being rebels, broke away from the Church of England because they believed it was too Catholic. And they left England for the colonies for this reason. And so they didn't want to carry anything with them that had to do with Catholicism. And Halloween was something that had to do with Catholicism. By the mid-19th century, America was primed for a much darker holiday. Having endured four long years of civil war that ended in 1865 with over a half a million dead. so many unclaimed, unknown dead bodies that the Civil War left behind that this country was obsessed with death. And mostly it was that so many of these soldiers died unknown. We don't know what happened to them. So there was a huge sense of they could come back. Maybe they're not dead. It makes perfect sense that people would tell more ghost stories. And the very first Halloween ghost stories were about people coming back home. It's at this time America's Halloween story begins. And when we come back, America and Halloween, 
here on Our American Stories. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories And on our show we tell stories about everything From music, to cars, to sports, the American dream Periodically public policy But we also like to talk about where and how Americans are living Where and when are they moving and why and when we came across Joel Kotkin's book, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, it sparked a lively discussion, and we decided in our studio that we were going to drill down. We picked four or five books a year to drill down on, and one of them was Greg Ipp's terrific book, Foolproof, and he's the managing economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. And it was also all about risk and safety, and it was fascinating. We ended up doing a multi-part series, and we're about to do the same with Joel's book, and we welcome Joel to the show. It's good to be here. You bet. And Joel, you heard Chicago coming in from Frank Sinatra. We wanted to start off. Chicago's population, uh, a couple of my guys here on Research pointed out, is the same 2.7 million uh, today as it was in 1920. And Houston, uh, a city that generally sort of attacked for its ugliness and its sprawl and its lack of uh, unified zoning cohesion is about to overcome Chicago. Uh, let's start there and talking about where people are moving from and to. Well, of course, you know, the city limits are, are somewhat limited, but of course, what, um, and that sort of, that, today, the vast majority of the population in virtually all the metropolitan areas is outside the city core or even the city limits. But look, the, the reality is that Chicago which has a very powerful PR machine, you know, gets very nice mentions um, you know, fairly often, is a city that essentially um, is, has lost its position as the business center or is certainly losing the position of, of, the, of the middle part of the country. That's really going, I think, fundamentally to Dallas. Um, it's lost its manufacturing and industrial status largely to Houston. Um, and it's a city with a you know very high crime rate. Um, it's uh, it's got terrible debt issues. I mean, Houston has its own debt issues, but not quite as bad as Chicago. Um, it's a city that's been terribly mismanaged for a very long time, uh, and um, is clearly you know, not the city it was certainly in 1920, and 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 probably not the city it was in uh, 1960. I mean, it is it has been on a constant sort of gradual decline, even though at the same time its downtown is maybe the most beautiful in the country. 
There are neighborhoods in Chicago that you you would say these are the, some of the great neighborhoods in the United States, but there are also just huge expenses. You want to talk about ugly, huge expenses on the west side, on the south side, that are are horrific places and 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 with very very little hope um, and very high crime. So, uh, you know, basically, what Houston has done is Houston has you know got lower costs. It's been somewhat less corrupt. Um, and uh, the other thing is that people continue to move to Houston. You know, people always say, well, you know, Chicago's a great place, and Houston's a horrible place, and how come people migrate to a horrible place and leave a wonderful place? You would ask that question. Yep, you would. And, and by the way, Joel, in a, in a piece I had written uh, for National Review called Southern Like Me, because I moved from New Jersey to Oxford, Mississippi, and people in the North looked at me funny, and, I, and they had particularly on the race issue were looking at me funny, and I said, look, you know, there's this guy, Joel Kotkin, who's been keeping track of this, tracking census data, and more black people have now moved back to the South than escaped the South to move to the North in the 1940s and 50s. And if the South is such a racist, awful place, why are black people moving back to it? Uh, black people are human beings like everyone else, and think that they move for opportunity, and not just opportunity per se in terms of jobs, but a quality of life, what you can afford to have. Um, I mean, when you you know, I always get a kick out of this. That some of the cities that are most um, progressive, if you want to use that terminology, on race issue, you know, most sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, most uh, raging about uh, about Donald Trump's uh, you know, nativism and racism, which you know, which is something certainly the people should react against. But the, what they're in the cities like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Boston, all the cities that are actually having their own form of ethnic cleansing. The black and, in some cases, Latino populations are, are, are shrinking. In many cases, we're small to start with um, as these cities have gentrified. So, you know, the, the, you know, you don't have a huge number of black people moving to Seattle. I mean, the, the way a place like Seattle or Portland um, uh, uh, runs, it just there is no real room for a, a black community. And I think African Americans and the ones I've spoken to, particularly in places like Houston, um, feel they feel at home. They feel this is where they were from originally. This is this is a place where uh, where you know the chance of owning a home is much much higher than it might be um, in in a place like New York or Los Angeles. And so that's why they're moving because you know they're not just moving from the Northeast; they're moving from California as well. Yep, yep, all over the country. And what's interesting is when I first got here, Joel, I was stunned at the level of integration here compared to New Jersey, which had some of the highest levels of segregation. I grew up there; there was one black family in my whole town in Bergen County, and all the black people lived in one place, all the white people lived in another place. And I go to a I go to a school district where thirty five percent of the kids or African-American or Hispanic, and the kids are together, and all through the state you find that. And I think through the South you find black and white living together in ways that you don't see in many other places, Joel. Well, there's, there's also, you know, there is a, you know, a, a, for all the, the nasty history, which is certainly there, yep. there's, there's, a, there's a cultural um, similarity. The, the music that, that people like, the food that they eat, the, the, the way they, they, they worship have tremendous... Uh, similarities um, that are very strong. You know, it's it, it's always funny when I when I would travel around the world and you'd go to places um, in uh, let's say in, in Asia where there were Indians and Pakistanis who would be at each other's throat at home. Right. But 
but when they're in a different environment, they say, well, you know, we, we eat curry. We have the same, right. we have, you know, a lot of the same history. And so I think that there's a, there's a sense of, of being at home in the South. And you know, uh, at the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, we did a study on, um, on best cities for minorities, and, and, and one of them was obviously African Americans. And what was funny is 13 of the 15 best places for African Americans measured by the whole sense of a series of categories were in the old confederacy i just thought that was kind of ironic well it's it's, it's ironic but yet for people who've lived here they'll, they'll always say look the laws separated us the clan was here it was horrible but you know we knew each other we really did know each other and i think that and and as you said that shared common culture is overwhelming um but you know it, the more i get to spend time here the more that doesn't only not surprise me, what surprises me is that no one knows this story in the country, Joel. It's a, I think it's one of the great untold stories in America. Well, I, I, I think that it's be, you know, in part because you know, prejudice comes in all different forms. And one of the prejudices are things that may have been true in 1965 or 1975, but you know, that's 40 years ago, are stuck in people's minds. You know, um, and and they have a hard time changing them. You know, it's like views of the suburbs. The suburbs are X Y Z. You know, they're I E. They're all white. They're, right. They don't allow blacks. They right. Uh, they don't have any culture. The food is terrible. Well, a lot of that was true forty years ago. But you know what? If you want a good Indian meal in Houston today, you go to Sugarland. If you want to have good Vietnamese food in Southern California, you go to Orange County. Right. Um, because you know what? The immigrants, like the African-Americans who can do it, are moving to suburbs, and they want to move to nicer suburbs. They don't want to move to suburbs that maybe are right near the ghetto but are still very, um, very poor. Right. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion with Joel Kotkin, a book we love and that we're digging into, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a terrific place to study all of the things that matter in life, the finest things in life, the beautiful things in life, everything from the Constitution to the arts to literature, going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, straight up to Shakespeare. The kids will learn the Western canon. The students there will learn it all at Hillsdale. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and watch their free and terrific online courses. And on this day in history in 1921, an American sergeant in a French town selected the unidentified remains of an American serviceman to be brought back to the United States and laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery 
in the tomb of the unknown soldier. All war may be hell, but trench warfare of World War I was a special kind of hell. Many soldiers who fell to the barbed wire, machine guns, artillery, and horrid sanitation were mangled beyond recognition, denying their families final closure. To honor these servicemen and their families, Congress approved the burial of an unidentified American serviceman from the war in the new Memorial Amphitheater at Arlington. Four unknown American soldiers were exhumed from four American World War I cemeteries in France, and a handful of American soldiers met them in a chapel. Among the Americans was the twice-wounded and highly decorated for valor infantry sergeant Edward F. Younger. Here's what happened next in his own words. Quote, At first, it was an idea that we, the six soldiers, were to be just pallbearers. But when we lined up in the little makeshift chapel, Major Harbold, the officer in charge of grave registrations, told us, One of you men is to be given the honor of selecting the body of the unknown soldier. He had a large bouquet of pink and white roses in his arms. He finally handed the roses to me. I was left alone in the chapel. There were four coffins, all unnamed, all unmarked. The one that I placed the roses on was the one brought home and placed in the National Shrine. I walked around the coffins three times. Then suddenly I stopped. And what caused me to stop, I don't know. It was as though something had pulled me. I placed the roses on the coffin in front of me. I can still remember the odd feeling that I had, standing there, alone. Sergeant Younger placed a spray of white roses on the third casket from the left, and that American was brought home aboard the USS Olympia. The other three were reinterred alongside their brothers, in France. This unknown soldier laid in state in the Capitol Rotunda until Armistice Day, now known as Veterans Day, 1921, when President Warren G. Harding officiated at the internment ceremony at Arlington. The unknown soldier received our highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor, the equivalent honor from the United Kingdom, the Victoria Cross, and several other such foreign honors. In subsequent decades, the unknown soldier from World War I was joined by brothers from World War II, the Korean War, and for a while, the Vietnam War. The Vietnam soldier was later identified, so the slab over the crypt now reads, Honoring and Keeping Faith with America's Missing Servicemen. And a very special breed of American soldiers keeps watch over these unknowns at this memorial on a hill overlooking the nation's capital. Since midnight, July 2nd, 1937, these unknown soldiers have never been alone. Tomb guards have stood watch at the monument round the clock through wind, rain, snow, and heat. Since April 18, 1948, these tomb guards have come from the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, the Old Guard. Let's listen to a few of these soldiers on how one becomes a tomb guard. Basically, all soldiers are selected on a volunteer basis. That way we know we're getting a soldier who really wants to be down here. So we put soldiers through two different types of training. It could either be a two-week uh, TDY class, as we call it, or it could be a 30-day TDY class. The TDY cycle is to get prospective guards to learn the basics of uniform, 
rifle manual, marching, and memorization of history and facts. All the candidates' uniforms are torn apart and rebuilt from the ground up in order to achieve their standard of perfection. On average, about 60% of candidates will not graduate the TDY cycle. Successful candidates are counseled, assigned to a relief, issued Tomb Guard uniforms, and dubbed Newman. After this temporary duty test phase, chosen Newman go through much more training and testing before summer in the right to be a Tomb Guard. The overall process takes six to nine months, and only 10% succeed. The Tomb Guard badge is the second least awarded badge in the Army. The only rarer one is for Army astronauts. Once they are on the badge, the guards join the unceasing watch. We work on a nine-day work schedule. Basically, the first five days, uh, we work a, we're on work and then off work, uh, basically working three days. Um, 26 hours on, 22 hours off, basically, is what it comes down to. While watching over the tomb, the guards walk a meticulous 21 steps in front of the monument. They are so precise that you can see the overlapping shoe markings where their feet consistently fall. The tomb guard walk the mat exactly the same way on a comfortable day as they do during a blistering summer day, a winter blizzard, or even a hurricane. Every half, full, or two hours, depending on season, a relief commander and an oncoming guard join the guard on watch for a changing of the guard ceremony. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention please? I am Sergeant Leamy of the 3rd Infantry Regiment, United States Army, Guard of Honor, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The ceremony that you are about to witness is the changing of the guard. In keeping with the dignity of this ceremony, oh. it is requested that everyone Ready. Remain silent and standing. Hey. Thank you. Pass on your orders. Post and orders remain as directed. Orders acknowledged. Ready. Thanks. Present. Oh. And by the way, the routine is this one marches 21 steps south down the black mat laid across the tomb. Two, turns and faces east toward the tomb for 21 seconds. Three, turns and faces north, changes weapon to outside shoulder and waits 21 seconds. Four, marches 21 steps down the mat. Five, turns and faces east for 21 seconds. Six, turns and faces south changes weapon to outside shoulder, and waits 21 seconds. Seven, repeats the routine until the soldier is relieved of duty at the changing of the guard. The tomb guard on duty does not wear rank insignia, so he does not outrank the unknown soldiers he watches over. Even though this duty is cloaked in many layers of symbolism and ceremony, each of the young soldiers standing guard knows exactly why they're out there. I think every, I can speak for every single sentinel here, we would do our job just as hard, just as well, if this badge never existed. If you really know what you're doing, you're guarding 
the unknown soldiers who gave everything. Their parents never, never got to bury them, ever. And you are out there guarding the unknowns for those people who never got that satisfaction of burying their loved ones. And I just feel an overwhelming sense of, of pride to be able to do that. And what a thing to have young men do this and honor all those who fell and who never did get that proper burial. And if you ever get a chance when you're visiting Washington, D.C., make this your final stop. Don't make it the first one. Just make it the last one and tell the kids to leave the cell phones at home. And just, just glory in the silence. It's one of the few places in a public space in this country where everybody just shuts up. And there you have it, as always, are these days in history. And today, honoring the unknown soldier being selected in 1921. This is our American story. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Greg Hengler and his very special reporting on Halloween, its origins, how it came to America, and now the final part of this story. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. With new customs came new treats. Now kids began getting store-bought pre-packaged candies. Mars bars, Reese's Cups, M&M's, and good old Hershey's chocolate. Candy finally killed the rowdy Halloween. And now the time was right for the reinvented holiday to hit Hollywood. Hollywood has forever made movies from the creepy to the comical. Here's the 1952 Disney short titled Trick or Treat starring Donald Duck. Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, approach their uncle's door for a Halloween treat. Uh-oh, but Donald drops a trick into the boys' pillowcases. Lit firecrackers. And then follows it up by dropping on them a bucket of water that's been dangling above their heads. In 1966, just a year following A Charlie Brown Christmas, Halloween stature zoomed off the charts when America went trick-or-treating with Charlie Brown. Here's executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials, Lee Mendelson. 
The whole idea of the Great Pumpkin, of course, came from the comic strip when Sparky Schultz decided that it would be very funny if one of the kids got his holidays mixed up. And uh, so that's how Linus ends up in the pumpkin patch every year. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with this bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? When you stop believing in that fellow with the red suit and the white beard. Halloween night. A small American town. 15 years ago. Halloween-themed cartoons were one thing. A movie for adults with Halloween as its theme was another. Nobody had ever tried it before. That is, until director John Carpenter took a stab at it in 1978 with the simply titled classic, Halloween. Michael? Here's John Carpenter. The idea for calling my film Halloween came from the distributor. And when he said it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. There's never been really a Halloween-themed film. It's one of those eye-openers. Wow, why didn't I think of that years ago? What a great idea. Carpenter's $325,000 film about Michael Myers, a silent killer who escapes from a mental institution on Halloween, would spawn a franchise grossing more than $500 million. It also elevated the horror film from B-movie status to a respected genre. The slasher film also redefines speed. We learn that no matter how fast you run, Michael Myers walks faster. Carpenter's self-composed Halloween theme became recognizable apart from the movie. Here's John Carpenter and his band performing his iconic Halloween theme in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater in 2016. Horror movies will live forever. And completely by accident, Carpenter's film would also redefine our attitudes about Halloween masks. It started when the wardrobe budget forced the crew to create a mask for the villain for next to nothing. Here again is John Carpenter. The production designer ran up to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought this Captain Kirk from Star Trek mask, which didn't look anything like William Shatner, just this strange face, elongated face. But it was spray painted and, and, and fixed up a little bit. It was distorted, which is perfect. It's kind of written that way in the script, as wearing a face. The bargain basement mask and the villain behind it soon became another Halloween icon. Today, that trend has escalated to an obsession. Nail-biting knockoff film franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Halloween are inspiring growing legions of kids to dress to kill. Masks take their inspiration from pop culture, religion, politics, sports, you name it. And a growing number of faces behind them belong not to kids, but adults. 
Halloween has become a huge adult activity, and I, and I don't think that was uh, the case, say, 50, 60 years ago. But it's been, again, specific days set aside where you can be somebody that you normally aren't. Uh, you can get behind a mask, you can wear clothes you would never wear during the rest of the year, uh, and people enjoy these. You get those children who are now growing up, and they become very nostalgic for Halloween. So Halloween shifts again, starts to become more of an adult holiday. Fifty years ago, when you were too old to trick-or-treat, you probably had to stay home and hand out candy. There was nothing else for you to do. Now there is a vast and imaginative haunted house industry just for you. And there's something like 4,000 haunted houses in the United States every year. Here again is John Carpenter. I loved haunted houses. It fascinated me. They terrified me as a kid. But haunted houses aren't the only activity for adults on Halloween. From the two million people attending New York City's Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to the half a million attending West Hollywood's Halloween Carnival, the holiday takes a walk on the wild and naughty side. If you look at the costumes that are sold to adults these days, the costumes for women are all kind of borderline prostitute costumes. You know, the sexy nurse, the sexy maid, the sexy anything. Clearly, a lot of women want to have a very sexy side of them, and it's only on Halloween that they bring it out. Maybe, you know, they could do a little more often. Not surprisingly, alcohol plays a huge role in Halloween's popularity. So much so that by the 1990s, beer sales for Halloween surpassed both the Super Bowl and St. Patrick's Day. Halloween's popularity is also due to the fact that it embodies the American obsession with self-transformation, being who you aren't or who you would like to be. Trick-or-treaters remain on high alert today. And just as Halloween has scared kids for years, Halloween scares parents too. They fear sending their kids out into a hostile world of trick-or-treats full of poisoned candy and razor blade riddled apples. Reynoldsburg police confirm it was a razor blade found in a piece of candy. They're recommending you spread out all of your children's candy and inspect each piece. I grew up hearing about razor blades and apples myself, and it's clearly what we would call a contemporary legend. Uh, another term is urban legend. There's a great societal unease about this idea that we're telling our kids to go take candy from strangers. So there's a lot of stories about razor blades and candied apples and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and parents every year get very, very worried about it. Did razor blades and apples ever happen? Uh, I believe there are a couple of cases, but of course you can ask which came first, you know, the story or the actions. Razor blades and apples, jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes, they make up the legends, the texture of the Halloween we know. Today, Halloween wears many masks, yet, it still remains the domain of kids. When you're a kid, you had one night a year where you were in charge, you got to dress up, you got to be something that you usually weren't, and you kind of even got paid for the privilege of this. It was an amazing holiday. Look closely, and you will see Halloween is a showcase for everything the human race fears. Through the centuries, we've learned to live and tame that which scares us most. 
It's invigorating, it's sensual, there's a freedom to it that is very, very enjoyable. At the same time, it's ritualized. You can do this at a certain time, a certain place. Some of the images of Halloween, some of the decorations, if people would have put them out at any other time of the year, their neighbors would call the police. But at Halloween, you're allowed to take these very disturbing kinds of ideas and deal with them directly. There's a great liberation, a great sense of freedom to that. It is on this day of freedom that Americans turn their fears into fun. I'm Greg Hengler, and we here at Our American Stories would like to wish you and yours a very happy and safe Halloween. And great job as always on that, Greg. And my favorite part of the art, I'd read Hawthorne, I was an American lit major. I did not know he introduced the jack-o'-lantern into America. Again, thanks for those details, Greg. A lot of work goes into pieces like this. And you can hear all that we do here in Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. The Halloween story here on Our American Stories. <laughs>